You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Chris Ware is the graphic novelist and the author of the Acme Novelty Library, Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth, Quimby the Mouse, and Rusty Brown. His latest book is a box set of the comics that comprise building stories. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you so much for having me here. It's very kind of you. Chris, when we read this, it comes together to us as what I would call a Dickensian tale set in a single building in Chicago and the current day and sometimes in the past. And I think it's mm-hmm. a really beautiful and human and moving story. But it came out as a separate series of pieces. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to talk about creating those pieces and how much of the overall story you knew from the beginning and how much of it developed in the course of creating the work. Sure. Um, I started it, I think, now t- 11 years ago for a Swiss magazine called Hangar 21. And the requirement for my contributions to that magazine was that I I, uh, I had to letter each strip in French and German. I had to do two separate versions in languages that I didn't understand. So I, I tried to do strips that had very little words. So the very first strip I did was about a woman living on the third floor of an apartment building in Chicago told almost entirely in pantomime and at first I thought that would be that but uh from there I I uh, I started writing stories about the other inhabitants of the building somewhat inspired by uh Christoph Kieslowski's um Decalogue film which is one of my favorite movies of all time it's a 10 part series of films that he did for Polish television uh that all add up to an intertwined story and initially I thought what I would what I was working on was something along those lines. The story developed sort of organically from from there. But I realized as I was working on it that the character with whom I'd started, the woman on the third floor, was, for better or for worse, was sort of the main character. So then the, the story ended up being filtered entirely through her mind and not being sort of an objective way of trying to look at the, the way the various people in the building interact. It became more about... Um, her life and her interpretations of what the people who lived in the building were, were were like. Talk about creating a character first entirely in pantomime. Did you know much about her and which strip is this? In? Now, let me uh, at least attempt to describe what we get here because this is a, a magnificent piece of writing and creation and just a publishing in terms of stuff publishing it one might think you couldn't even get this. It's a box that's, what, uh, 12 by 24 maybe? or uh, 16, I think. 12, 12 by 16? 16. Yeah, it's, a, it was, it's based around the size of a folded uh, newspaper page, basically the size that newspapers were before they started to shrink a few years ago. So, But unfortunately, that's a, just about the size of what one would think of as the average board game, which is really an association I did not hope or aim for, but for better or for worse, I guess it sort of looks like that. But Well, now inside there are 14 different pieces, mm-hmm. and they range in size from a tiny or medium-sized fold-out strips, which are, um, I don't know, maybe this looks like about two and a half feet, 
And there's another one that's maybe an inch and a half tall and six inches wide. And this is this thing here. Um, so was this the original story here? <laughs> uh, that is that actually was a um, what is that? I can't even tell. Sorry, we're doing the thing we shouldn't do on radio, which right. is talk about things you can't see. That was uh, that's actually just part of a longer story, which is a hardcover book. Some of the some of the stories, um, especially those that that happened in the characters' past, are condensed down into more of a of a traditional book form. Hopefully, to somewhat uh, reflect the way that our own minds hone and edit down our own memories into sort of understandable stories and explanations for the people that we think we are. Whereas more recent uh, things that have happened to us maybe are a little more open-ended and more malleable in our minds, I think. so. Oh, that's one of the things I think that really got me when I was reading this and reading the pieces in this is your sense of story and identity because I think this captures the way story and identity really work for us as readers, as human beings. If I ask you, who are you, Chris Ware, you're going to tell me a story. I guess, yeah. I'll try, but probably wouldn't be very good. But well, yeah. Uh, and I think that as a as a writer, you're creating these stories to create these identities of the characters, mm-hmm. and your sense of the way stories work. We tend to get when we read a book, we tend to get one story, chronological events, beginning to end. Mm-hmm. But this is like a box of the memories. This is like opening up somebody's head. Well, it's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I wanted to make a book that had really no beginning or end. Uh, there was, There's no specific good right way to start this or no specific good way to stop it in the same way that you can enter your own memories at any given point in a very three-dimensional way and take them apart and put them back together again. But that's not to say that there's a, there's a puzzle to be figured out. There is a, a very, I think, at least semi-coherent chronology of 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 this main character's life from her from her twenties to her uh, early forties when she has a daughter, but it's I, I wanted to to do something where it it wasn't clear entirely what the present time was. Like it wasn't it, depending on what book you picked up, you might assume that that was the present time, but I might find out later that actually it it's not that it was the past or to have. There's a, it's kind of a peculiar feeling, at least I've experienced a few times, where I find myself so incredibly lost in thought that just for a second or two, I honestly lose all sense of when I'm existing, and then I feel that I am, that I'm back in my in my previous self or a previous time or in a previous relationship, and it's just this peculiar kind of disconnect or something, or almost like sort of a falling back in in your chair. And I wanted to to get a, a slight sense of that with this. Hopefully, one of the things I think that is uh, so interesting about this is the though it focuses in on one character, I think it has this really open and expansive feel. She goes places, we see landscapes. Mm-hmm. This doesn't feel like a play. This feels more like a movie, I guess. Oh, that's nice. Is the the way I put it? And I'd like you to talk about. Um, creating these landscapes. So much of this is visual. Mm-hmm. Yet what really interested me, and this was uh, was that when I was reading this, it wasn't like reading a, a graphic novel, say like if you read um, the Sandman books or there's a graphic novel adaptation of The Hobbit Out or something. Mm-hmm. That has a certain kind of reading experience. This 
to me, reading this was much more akin to just reading pure prose. Oh, that's even, nice. Even when I was just read, looking at pictures, mm-hmm. uh, talk about creating, telling that these narratives just in images. As a young cartoonist, I uh, like all, I think, young cartoonists, I found myself relying much too much on words to tell stories. In fact, I found that I was frequently just simply illustrating my words with pictures and I decided to completely stop using words to try to f- see if I could tell stories only only with pictures. And um, after doing that for a couple of years, I became attuned to this sort of peculiar experience of of reading pictures, which produces almost sort of like sounds or tones in the mind, I guess. And I, I guess it's akin somewhat to uh, to the, the rhythms and in, in, I don't know how what word is better, sort of uh, unheard sounds that one experiences when in conversation and you read people's gestures or the way that they move their body or something it actually it produces a sort of counterpoint rhythm or tone in your mind so I was I, I guess that's somewhat part of it and I I try to pay attention to the rhythms of the gestures and to the rhythms of the images and as I'm working and as I'm reading through them I, I try to pay attention to my feeling as to whether it feels right or feels wrong and frequently I'll take things out or, or subdivide them. It's all very uh, it's very instinctual, I guess. So um, I guess that's sort of like prose. I mean, we're creatures of language. Whether you, whether you use words or you use pictures, you're still writing with pictures, whether you're describing those pictures or whether you're drawing those pictures directly, I think. So, I mean, the best prose is, is fundamentally visual, the kind that creates an image in your mind. So, But uh, comics have this kind of peculiar ability to keep your eyes open when you're reading because frequently when you read prose you go blind essentially you look at the page and you cease to see the words on the page even though your eyes are open it's almost like sort of like falling asleep but with comics you you're still sort of half awake in a way these pictures almost kind of come alive on the page in a way at the same time they're connecting with your own memories and your own experiences hopefully at least ideally it's a kind of a difficult balancing act which is maybe why it's um, not the most common medium chosen by rational human beings who are otherwise perfectly normal. So, but well, I think this the stories in this are so beautiful, and this book is filled with more emotion, I think, than almost any I've read this year. It's, it's oh, wow. it, it almost very nice of you. lots of these these scenes, just the scenes, um, you know, would might bring somebody to the edge of tears, and that might be me. Well, that's very nice of you. <laughs> well, I. That was the aim. I mean, I, I've never wanted to do anything in storytelling other than to try to communicate emotions or feelings. That's uh, that's always been my aim and always and remains my aim is to try to communicate it as honestly as possible and as clearly as possible. So, But uh, not necessarily through the drawing, the quality of the drawing itself, but through the way that the, the drawings add up to a sense of person and, and consciousness on the page. So. One of the things that drives um, all the pieces in this work, and I think much of your work, is your sense of details, the the small details of ordinary lives. Mm-hmm. I love how ordinary your people are. I mean, this is just so wonderful that that we <laughs> have we have people that you know I might have known or might be, and so I'd like you to talk about picking out the ordinary details and the small details of the lives. Mm-hmm. There's a, a lot of places here where somebody will do something and you'll just have the word for the sound mm-hmm. and I think that's it's so evocative well um, 
I, yeah, I guess it seems ordinary to us. It might not seem ordinary to someone who grew up halfway around the world in somewhat different circumstances. But um, it, as far as, I mean, I thought of it as being sort of everyday life. There's no secret plot line or, or um, mystery to be solved in this. It's just an attempt to try to get at what it feels like to be alive. I mean, there are some sort of big moments in here. The character has an abortion, she gets married, etc. But it's not, there's no complicated uh, intrigue to be figured out. Um, when I was a kid, my uh, uh, growing up, I, I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house, and she was such a consummate, amazing storyteller. I would sit at her kitchen table kind of wrapped, I guess, just in her in her memories of, of her own childhood and, and raising my mother and then um, you know her early years of, of marriage to my grandfather. And, and her storytelling was so visual, it was almost like time travel, like she was placing these images in my mind. And to this day, I have these images in my mind that she placed there that are obviously they're not, they're not real there I've created them but they came from her somehow she she imparted this sense of reality to me so I guess in writing I try to do that somehow to try to get a sense of the everyday and of the reality and of what it feels like to be because I mean that's what it's all about is to try to understand other people that's what all writing is about it's about instilling or creating a sense of empathy hopefully for other people and I mean we're all we're all fiction writers whether we like it or not. I mean, just meeting somebody for the first time, you instantly become a writer trying to figure out, well, what is this person like? What is maybe their home life like? What are they thinking about me right now? And all of those things that you might attribute as to reality are really creations of your own mind. So it's uh, we kind of live in our own fictional world. That comes across well. And, and as to the, the image of uh, you listening to your grandmother's stories because we have the landlady figure in, mm-hmm. in this book and, and we see some of her stories. And I think those are really poignant uh, pieces. And well, thanks. Talk about uh, creating characters you know, who are fairly different from you. I mean, your main character, you it is not to put too fine a point on it, it's pretty different from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what made you, what led to the decision to base all these stories around this character? I don't know. It was, uh, it just sort of happened, I guess. I, I try to work somewhat intuitively, though it may not look like it because I want my drawings to be very dry and uninteresting on the page. Um, but uh, I want the stories to be compelling, hopefully. It just sort of happened that way. I just found her interesting. She looks not unlike my wife um, physically, but mentally she's not as much. So I, I don't know. It's it's probably the closest thing to sort of a semi-biographical story I've done. Um, but it's she's her own character, certainly. So. Well, now this story you've written is over eleven years. You said mm-hmm. that's a long time to be, yes, to, to work on, around a, a single character and a single set of stories. And I talk a little bit about uh, seeing this come together. I, I'm imagining that when you first did your first wordless panels, you weren't thinking, "Well, eleven years down the line, I'm going to have a fourteen <laughs> no, different pieces." I did not at all. No, I, um, I guess about maybe three years of after of working on it off and on. I've been working on another book concurrently with this. Um, the the format sort of became clear to me, and, and from that point on, it started to sort of form itself. Um, I didn't 
I tried not to be too prescriptive about it or to force it into any sort of, you know, I didn't have like, I will have 14 books and they will all look like this. It's I tried to be intuitive about it and, and allow it to happen. Or if it didn't feel right, I'd try to change it. But uh, I, I mean, I think that's the way, I mean, that's certainly the way our lives unfold. Um, I I would I wrote down lots of notes and ideas about what what might possibly happen. Frequently, that just simply meant that that wasn't going to happen. In a way, it's almost sort of a weird purging or something. But uh, um, more often than not, ideas come to me while I'm working, not while I'm sitting around thinking about other things. So it's all very much about um, my own memories and about looking at the character on the page and, and basically empathizing with that drawing of them, which sounds completely crazy, basically, but it's kind of what cartoonists do. I don't know if it rises from at least my generation's um, uh, proclivity towards uh, keeping to ourselves, maybe because we were not necessarily the most popular kids in the class, so we created these little worlds in which we felt either a sense of control or a sense of compassion um, and that comes through in what we do now. But uh. You talked about creating a world, and I think that that's really an important aspect of this, that in this, these pieces you build a whole world. And mm-hmm. I think it's every bit as complex and interesting as, for example, Frank Herbert's Dune. Mm-hmm. And in some ways maybe as foreign, as you say, to there would be a lot of people who would look at this and – might find Star Wars or Dune more familiar than <laughs> this kind of world. Huh. Well, it's pretty much just about somebody. I mean, the story's just about a a, a woman who's graduated from art school and uh, then goes and gets a gets a job so she can pay her rent, and then wonders if she's going to ever get married. And the the sort of the sense that at least that I had when I was in my twenties, the thought of being married and having a child felt like science fiction. It just seemed so remote. I could barely even grasp the idea of it but now when I look back on my 20s I just I think well I can kind of understand that person and he's buried alive somewhere inside me but I don't feel a connection necessarily if I like I said earlier though sometimes if I sit and think about it for a long time I can almost lose myself back into that husk of a person in a way so um but it, I don't think. I mean, hopefully, it's not that alienating. Hopefully, it's kind of an inviting. Oh no, it's situation. It's it's, it's involving and immersive. I mean, I I loved I love being in this, and I think one of the nice things about the way you've crafted this in terms of the different pieces is because there are so many different pieces, and because there's no super clear order in which to experience them. Mm-hmm. You can mix it up and mm-hmm. go back and revisit this. And for me, that's the sign of a truly um, worthy piece of literature oh, that you thanks. can reread it. And so talk about uh, creating something that's rereadable. Well, I, you know, that's something that certainly I think any writer hopes for, but you can't necessarily control. That To me, that's the ultimate um, goal is to try to make something that somebody would want to reread but I don't I don't know how to do that I have no idea other than to try to simply make it as good and honest and heartfelt and hopefully as emotional as possible and then from there you know if somebody wants to reread it then that's an extra bonus point I suppose but I I, fundamentally I was just trying to make something that was hopefully without sounding too pretentious was just a beautiful uh, I studied painting and sculpture and printmaking, um, and I, I was trying. I tried to make. I wanted to make something that hopefully at least had something of the of the something beautiful to it, as well as as you know, 
the emotional power of, of writing. Now, you refer to your drawings as as dry and interesting as possible, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't see that. <laughs> well, it's, well, I think if you looked at them closely, you'd find that they were. I mean, they're intentionally synthetic. It's fiction, so mm-hmm. I, I try to 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 draw in a way that indicates that that they are they're constructed images. They're not drawn from actual experience. They are in in much the same way that our own. Uh, the if you if there would be some way of of taking what we think of as words and making them into images, taking them out of our minds and putting them on the page and making them into ideograms or whatever the word is. That's sort of what I'm aiming for there. Because I really do feel as adults, the language actually affects the way we see the world. It reduces the information that comes into our brains and allows us to navigate the world in a more facile and and, um, easy way. Um, And it also can sometimes almost completely shut down reality around us. We very, very rarely live in the present. We're frequently just lost in thought about mistakes that we made or what's going to happen in the future. And I think that contributes most pointedly to our sense of, of, of discouragement and unhappiness. We're just, we, I mean, this is, it's a cliche to say, but very few people can live in the present. And frequently some of the most emotional moments in our lives happen in recollection. They don't actually happen in the moment. Even see when I embrace my daughter frequently, I'll, it's it's more moving to me in my memory than it is in the actual moment when I'm when I'm embracing her. So it's a very strange thing being alive. So, <laughs> well, that's what this book captures. Well, that's very generous of you. I, I, I that's what I was aiming for. I don't know if it's uh, it's there at all, but I that uh, one hopes for it. So, with all this stuff we get. My first thought is there's got to be probably 10 times as much that we don't see. Is that the case? Not at all. No, it's all there, I think. Wow. No, there's two pages maybe that I didn't use or that I redrew. So Wow. <laughs> it's It takes that... too long to draw this stuff otherwise. I mm-hmm. mean, each page represents generally about a four days of work. So it's... Uh, That's a lot. Yeah, it takes yeah. a while. The, no wonder it, it took 11 years. Yeah, it's... Well, again, I've been working on another book, but the... The ratio of reading time to um, to drawing time is 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 vastly inequitable. It's um, shameful, actually. So it's writing prose is a very effective and and uh, and uh, efficient way of communicating complex human experience. And I don't know if comics necessarily are, but it's sort of the medium into which I've thrown my lot, for better or for worse. So, but well, I have to say that there's a poignancy to your imagery to the visual imagery that could never be recreated or equaled in prose. And I think that's part of the point is that... Well, that's and, very kind of you to say. Well, how, how do you make that decision when you're creating the story? I have no idea. I, I, it's purely intuitive. Frequently, I'll start simply with an image in my mind, or sometimes I'll start with a phrase. Sometimes after I've worked on the page for a while, I might go back and change it and put a phrase in where I had an image, or it's... I don't know. It's whatever feels right on the page, basically. There's no hard and fast rule. So sort of like it's just it's sort of living with some kind of false memories in a way and then trying to get them down on the page in a way that feels the closest to what experiencing them is like. Now, there are so many really nice uh, formats in this book. I love, you know, there's these strips. And I'd like you to just talk about the decision, decision which ones are strips, Mm -hmm. um, which ones are newspapers, and 
which ones are just kind of hybrids. Sure. There's even uh, a board. That's true. Yeah, there's the, the the board itself, which folds out to, I think, about four feet long or so, is the original four strips that are based around the seasons and then the four um, floors of the building itself. And the kind of, in a way, it's sort of an introduction to the characters, the uh, landlady who never marries the couple on the second floor who are in probably not the most healthy of relationships, and then the woman on the third floor who's living entirely alone, but then who actually does get married and have a child of her own. Um there's also a, a small booklet, which I always thought of as sort of like this, this cereal pamphlet or something that you might get in a box of cereal as a kid. It's I'm not sure how many pages it is. I think it's 52 pages that tells, uh, it's an attempt to tell a an entire uh, day of in the life of, of this character after she's had her daughter and arose out of a conversation that I had with my friend Ira Glass, a radio host, when I was telling him about he said, well, how's your daughter doing? And I said, geez, you know, she just, it's really true. The kids grow up so fast. And he looked up from his dinner and he said, cliche. And I thought, well, that's, it. you know, he was right. It is a cliche to say that. And I felt like, well, there must be some way of communicating this or trying to communicate it in a way that maybe isn't quite as cliched. Because, um, I mean, I think anybody who's had kids knows it's just every single day is it's, oh, my God, what's happening? They're just, they get older every day. So... This, the booklet itself is organized in such a way that every page represents, or each successive page is 20 minutes later in, in the course of one day from morning until night, but at the same time the child ages uh, three months for every page. So when the book starts, she's the daughter is a newborn, but by the end of the book, at the end of the day, she's 11 years old and on the cusp of womanhood. So hopefully... Um, this is the gold, the little golden book? No, nope, this is just a long sort of a landscape-sized pamphlet. Mm-hmm. And then there is a book that's based on the little golden book format, um, which it's a little bit bigger so that it feels maybe more like a golden book would have felt in the hands of when we were actually smaller mm-hmm. organisms. Uh, and that tries to capture a sense of the, of the one day in the life of this apartment building when right at the moment that the main character meets her, the, the, the man who becomes her husband, or I should say re-meets him at a party by accident. There's also a, a couple of uh, newspaper broadsheets, which is an attempt to try to use the sort of unwieldy large format of of the rapidly vanishing newspaper, which is essentially where comics as medium flowered in America at the turn of the century. I've tried to use large images in there to try to communicate a sense of uh, of emotional, I don't know what the word would be, I guess power for lack of a better word. There's a large drawing of her daughter sitting on top of her in the backyard where they're just kind of playfully wrestling. And there's another page where the her daughter is is a, is a 10-month-old baby, and, and the drawing of the baby is the actual size that she is as, a, as an infant. This is so, the God book? Uh, that's what I would call it. I, I don't have names for any of them. Oh, really? I very pointedly avoided using any names uh, in the book. Actually, the main character does not have a name, uh, and I didn't name any of the books uh, themselves, so... That decision was made because, well, for a variety of reasons. Because when human beings name things, uh, there's just the mystery kind of instantly disappears, and it. And uh, as soon as you name something, you kind of stop looking at it, maybe as as clearly as you might. Uh, there's very few experiences in one's adult life where one really doesn't know what one is looking at. Sometimes I use the example of if you're driving down the road and you see something in the in the street, you know, is it a towel? Is it a cat? Is it a, is it a, you know, 
cat? Is it a towel? Is it, oh, good, it's only a towel. But there's that moment of uncertainty where your brain is trying to see what it is, where I think you're suddenly in the moment, you're suddenly experiencing the world uh, in a way that, like I said earlier, I, I don't think adults necessarily do all the time. So as well, in my own dreams, I find that I don't have a name necessarily. There's something about my identity in my own dreams where it seems sort of uh, a given that I am who I am, but I don't necessarily have a name. It's just more of a feeling. So I was trying to get at that with this. The book itself is supposed to sort of be a dream object in and of itself anyway. So. And actually it is a dream object within the book. <laughs> there's a, Right. <laughs> there's Talk a little bit about... Um, creating these cross connections how many of them arose as you were writing the narrative and do you do you revise did you go back and say well i've got because this is a a a very intricately layered work Mm -hmm. i mean this is literally layered you pull it out of the box and it comes up (laughs) in layers but i think there are prose layers there are theme layers there are image layers in Mm -hmm. this book and um so that Sometimes we'll look at a panel and just see the colors and know, okay, here we are in this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, Part of it was intentional and part of it is accidental. I mean, our brains are very organized things, and I would, would be surprised sometimes at the rhymes that would happen on a page completely unconsciously. And I, I don't even know how to explain that necessarily other than that I, I try to trust my instincts, like I said earlier, when I'm working. and I And I think that because we are creatures of language that our brains are much more organized than we give them credit for. And I, and I feel like it's sort of the artist's duty to try to find a form to allow that to happen rather than trying to impose a structure on it. So, but yeah, there are, there's, there are, in, there are intentional rhymes and unrhymes in here. There's also an attempt to try to get at a sense of lying to oneself or misremembering something. There are some moments in here that are presented twice in two different circumstances or memories of rooms where furniture shifts only because that's, I think, the way frequently we remember things is we might misremember where something happens or even um, misremember, uh, you know, you might be telling somebody about going to see a movie and what a great movie it was, and then that person will say, yeah, I, I actually saw that movie with you. I was there with you. And you think, oh, geez, sorry. You know, it's it's kind of amazing the tricks that your mind will play on you. So um, anyway. Well, this book is uh, gives us as readers, you know, that's an interesting thing because I hadn't thought about it that way, but this book lends itself to confabulation, mm-hmm. to read it and put it together in different ways, um, just by virtue of the way you pulled stuff apart and told the, the story in these little discrete segments. Mm-hmm. It does really lend itself to the way we make memories and the way, as humans, we might have a series of events that are either uninteresting or unrelated, yet when we talk and t- tell somebody about our day or what happened, mm-hmm. it's a story, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. Yeah. And that's what this does. It pulls things apart and lets us put them together the way we would put together our own stories. That, yeah, that's that was part of the idea, certainly, to try to get at the, the roundness of memories in a way. As an artist, this is, I mean, it's beautiful to look at, your sense of color, your oh, sense thanks. of composition. I mean, with so much here... It's really important that we be able to look at it and not have our minds break. And turn. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, because there's a lot of information you're giving us a lot, mm-hmm. and I'd like you to talk about your visual sense of you seem to like um, drop stuff out. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe like it's a photograph where you 
filtered everything. Do you mm-hmm. do you photograph things? Do you draw from photographs? Well, or? occasionally I might use a, just use photographs as a reference simply to make sure I'm getting the getting the you know shape of something correct. But I don't want it to look like a photograph. I want it to look like a memory of something. It's, mm-hmm. To me, comics are mu- are entirely about drawing one's memories, not about drawing one's vision. It's sort of like a you know trying to see what's in your in your mind in a way. So. But uh, there's a lot of pages in here that are designed symmetrically or designed in such a way that there's a large image in the center, which is sort of the way I find I remember things, that the images and stories and, and for lack of a better word, uh, there is no better word. They just sort of accrete around a, sometimes a single larger concept or something. So that is sort of an attempt to get at that on the page, I suppose. So. And to try to do it in such a way that... Because I feel like traditional comic pages going from left to right... It feels too linear. I was trying to get at something that's more three-dimensional and feels like it has less of a border to it. So by putting something in the middle of the page and then have everything oriented around it, it just feels more like that's the way things actually exist in our minds, which then again is sort of a two-dimensional impression of the book itself. So it's a smaller piece of a larger thing that's of the same structure. So but I, it, fundamentally the whole thing is just to try to... to empathize with other people hopefully make something that is moving in such a way because I really do feel like there's really no greater certainly as a father lesson that one can that impart to one's child or in, in or that any art can impart it other than a, other sense of, of emotional empathy for other human beings I feel like sometimes that's not necessarily uh, stressed in our culture as much as it could be well, that's one of the things this book does so well is that it draws us into these lives and lets us live these lives in a sense that we see the failings and we love these characters for their failings. Oh, that's nice. And, I, and I'd like you to talk about creating characters who have flaws and, and make bad decisions and do kind of mean things sometimes. When you're going through all these characters, and I'm thinking in particular of the married couple mm-hmm. where they're having all sorts of problems, um, do you find yourself, um, I guess, upset with what these people are doing or what you have to tell these people to do? Yeah, frequently. I, I Sometimes I, I, in my previous book, I tried to write a character who started out immoral and without any kind of ethical structure and then sort of gained an ethical structure and then from that point on would be a more thoughtful person that it didn't work out that way. He just ended up going back to being the sort of not good person he was. And I sort of felt like I'd failed as a writer in that way. But there's this strange tension that goes on when you create a character. It's 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 almost kind of like you can't... When you try to prescribe or you try to script, it doesn't always work. It's like um, it's trying to... It works better if you try to just internalize or somehow capture the person. It's It's sort of like the difference between... Um, making up a story about someone and then imitating somebody at the school lunch table. You know, you can. Is that maybe that's not a good metaphor? I don't know. It's it's more about internalizing the character. And when you internalize the character, they start to tell you what to do. That sounds way too much more mysterious than it is. But there's a little bit of that to it. So, and it, uh, for years, I tried to write stories about my grandmother, and I could never do it because I get stuck in the details of what. You know, the her kitchen looked like, or what did the tile look like? What what were the salt shakers on the table at that time? And I couldn't do it. But the second I introduced her to a fictional narrative, she suddenly came alive on the page in the same way that 
she did in my own memories and in my dreams, which I can't explain exactly. It's just suddenly the, the core of what I believed her character to be suddenly became more available to me. So, It's really beautiful to see that. I, I, I love her character in this. I think it's really, it's really nicely done. I, you know, um, one of the things that interested me was that um, getting this published... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is a uh, Pantheon has done such an amazing job to put this all together, and, and for you as a writer, this is a whole second layer of work. It's one thing to just create all the panels mm-hmm. and put them together, but then it must be another to say, okay, these are going to go in this book, and this mm-hmm. is going to go here. Talk about that kind of, you know, the the second, uh, the second, I guess level of composition is putting this together as a as a box of memories for us mm-hmm. uh, well it's really not that different from working on a story as a cartoonist i'm always thinking about the final book the final object it's it's sort of for lack of a better and less pretentious word it is sort of like sculpture in a way i try to think of the things in the round and think them through so and i've been self-publishing my own periodical now for a few years so i became sort of acquainted with how to how to pick the right paper and the right binding and how to put these things together. So it wasn't really that alien to me, and um, it's but it's a testament to the patience of Pantheon and to Andy Hughes, the production manager, to make it actually all work and be affordable in a way. Because uh, I mean, it's I, I keep using words that sound pretentious, but I mean, I wanted it to be as close as possible to what I think of as as art in a way, you know, without sounding like I'm trying too hard or that it's too pretentious or snobby or anything. But it's uh, hopefully with that same sense of generosity to it and attention to detail and something that gives something to the to the reader or at least tries to promise something. But it seems well, not to put too fine a point upon it. You could just take deconstruct this and take this completely apart mm-hmm. and fill up a, a, an art gallery or a couple of art galleries and I think yeah. it would be that would be a really interesting way to experience this story to actually wander through a building with the story on the walls mm-hmm. yeah it's um have you thought about that I did I, I have a couple of shows up now at the Adam Baumgold gallery in New York and the Carl Hammer gallery in Chicago of all the original artwork for this but I though I studied painting and sculpture I kind of gave up on gallery art in a way. I, I felt sort of uncomfortable with the idea of that being the the last place where something would be seen or that it might end up in somebody's house and I'd never see it again and I don't know who the person is. I, I really feel comfortable, much more comfortable with the idea of making uh, a book, which is really fundamentally an unpresumptuous um, way of, of getting artwork or imagery out there because it's, I mean... In terms of a book, this seems slightly expensive, but in terms of artwork, hopefully it seems affordable and cheap. So, I've, and I've said this many times in the past, but in, in art school, I found myself frustrated um, because I really didn't know much about art as a kid. And when I went to, to art school, I was introduced to the whole history of painting, especially 20th century painting, and I felt very kind of outclassed, I guess, or something. And I would go look at paintings in museums and think, geez, I don't understand this at all. And I found myself, you know, blaming myself for not understanding the history of painting to, to appreciate it. But I, I feel as a cartoonist, if, if somebody, if you read a, a comic strip and you don't get it, you don't blame your ignorance of cartooning. You just think the cartoonist is an idiot. So there's a, there's an honest relationship there between the reader and the writer in cartooning that I really deeply value. I feel that it's, there's no 
There's no wall that needs to be crossed. There's no cloud of, of uh, theoretical obfuscation or anything. It's just what you see is what you get. And it's one of the, at least in the art world, especially when I was in art school, trying to draw what you see what is what you get was very difficult. Now, one of the, my favorite aspects of this is Brandon the Best Bee in the World. Okay. <laughs> we have a lot of fun with Brandon the Best Bee in the World because uh -huh. we get a, a, a book. He's part of the book. Mm -hmm. And we also get hit the, the Daily Bee. And mm -hmm. this must have been uh, fun for you to create this. It was, yeah. He's a, he was a character. He's, well, he's the fourth character in the aforementioned uh, seasonal strips, all four seasonal strips, and sort of a joke on how people influence each other, sort of a subplot of the hybridization between two flowers planted in front of the building. But fundamentally what it comes down to is uh, these are supposed to be stories that the main character is telling to her daughter later in life and the sort of possibilities that exist in one's mind when making up stories for one's children on the fly and trying to avoid certain topics that might otherwise, you know, one might take. So, um which is an experience I've had as a dad. I, every single day, taking my daughter to school, she would say, tell me a story. And so I'd make up these stories and I'd be trying to drive at the same time and not, you know, kill us and get us there safely. And uh, frequently the frustration, I would think, you know, no, I can't say that because she's only four, you know, or I want to impart some sort of moral lesson here. Plus, I guess he's the main male character in the story. Uh, I like, too, the sense of that you have of, you know, What's really interesting to read in that is the level of anthropomorphization. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm saying that right. <laughs> the the way you kind of go back and forth between you'll tell us B facts, actual mm -hmm. B facts, and we have a high, but there are other things happening. And I really like that the way you play with that in in the comic and in the Daily B itself. Well, again, that's a, it's uh, just points towards empathy and trying to understand. Not only other people, but also other organisms. I think that's one of the reasons why we keep pets, is we impart personalities and, and ideas upon them that they might not necessarily have, but it all comes down to simply just trying to understand another consciousness and to try to to feel through them in some way. So, um, which again is the kind of the point of the book, I guess. And I, as a kid, I, 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 my, my mother was very, she imparted these lessons to me. She was, um, she told me, you know, leave the try to leave the world a slightly better place than it was than when you, you know, when you found yourself here. And she, she, she made me very sensitive, I think, to being sensitive to other people and to try to be a nice person, basically. And I think it's kind of an important lesson to to impart as well. So, well, the the joy that these characters bring to us as readers in their kind of rich, raw reality, mm -hmm. I think there's a I guess that's what these books have uh, is compassion. Well, it's nice a one. it's it's raw compassion, and that's not an emotion we actually often see or experience as as well rendered as you do so for well, us. Well, thanks. Well, I yeah, I, I guess maybe it's true. I just sort of wish it wasn't true, but well, I'm, I keep mentioning my grandmother and my mother. I was talking to my wife about this a month or two ago, and I said, yeah, I guess I was raised by women. And she said, well, don't make it sound like you were raised by wolves, but I really was, I think. You know, and I think it's, uh, whether it's uh, societal cliche or not, I think women are expected to be more compassionate or understanding than men, I don't think, which is a shame, because I think if men were, that might be a little bit, the uh, world might be a little bit better place. So maybe I was just lucky or something, but 
to have these lessons, but uh, I don't know. I certainly think we have a compassionate president right now, much more so than we have in the past. So I I, I agree, and and that brings up a a, a small sliver of political feelings in this book and you talk about the oil crisis and, and mm-hmm. I thought that that was it was interesting it was well handled within the framework of, of the book mm-hmm. uh, some of that is um, my wife is a, is a high school science teacher and uh, she reads a lot of websites about um, about the peak oil and and the energy you know crisis etc so and in, in a way it's an attempt to try to see the overall picture of the, of the story and the overall um, society that we live in some much in the same way that the the bee story tries to see the overall society so it's also in a way uh, to uh, try to get a sense of how the main character feels um, that she's not being taken seriously by her husband so and are you working on something new now or yeah I'm continuing to work on the uh, aforementioned uh, other graphic novel called Rusty Brown which I've got about 250 pages done of now, and we'll have to do many more before it's done. So, And it's about seven different characters. And it's coming out in pieces. It, yeah, chapter by chapter Chapter as well, by so. chapter. And mm-hmm. do you have—will it be in a similar form to this, do you think? No, I don't think so. I mean, I envision it just as a, a standard book. It's still in pieces, but it's, uh, it's, it's sort of got a through line mm-hmm. to it. So whereas the through line in this is more intuitive than being direct, so— I thought that the through line in this was so, uh, I think, really interesting and um, seductive. The the joy of this book is reading this and putting this together. Well, thank you. Well, it's I, I just wanted it to be fun more than anything, to be compelling in a way and hopefully, I don't know, yeah. I've been speaking with Chris Ware. His new book is Building Stories. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you for your wonderful questions. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.